Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to a special one-on-one edition of the podcast. I am very pleased to be joined today by Representative Jim Himes, who represents Connecticut's 4th District in the U.S. House of Representatives, where he's serving on his seventh term. Uh, he's the He serves as chair of the National Security, International Development, and Monetary Policy Subcommittee of the House Financial Services Committee. He's a a member of the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, where he chairs the Subcommittee on Strategic Technology and Advanced Research. Uh, how are you today, Congressman? Uh, I'm doing very well, David. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to have you. There's a lot of things to talk about. Uh, let's start with the subject of intelligence. Um, uh, uh, Bill Burns, the nominee for Director of Central Intelligence, well known to you, former colleague of mine, uh, and he had his hearings today. Um, what do you think of the prospects of uh, Bill Burns taking over at the agency? And what do you think his priorities ought to be? Yeah, so I, I had the opportunity to watch a little bit of his confirmation hearings today, and you saw just uh, vintage Bill Burns there, uh, you know, a man uh, of, uh, you know, realistic assessments of the of the threats that we face abroad, and probably very few people have been in front of as many of the United States as uh, uh, enemies and antagonists, as Bill Burns, uh, but uh, infinitely gracious. Um, you know, uh, his uh, his career in diplomacy comes through loud and clear in everything that he does. And, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, somebody who spends a lot of time watching the CIA from my perch on the Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, I think it's his moment. Um, you know, people will have different opinions of Mike Pompeo um, and do have different opinions of Mike Pompeo, the previous director before Gina Haspel. You know, Mike is an ardent nationalist, uh, very, very partisan, both as director of CIA and as uh, secretary of state. Um, Bill Burns, I think, will uh, be a solve to the institutional culture at the CIA. He is a guy who is, um, I think, probably more than anyone else that President Biden might have picked, understands how absolutely critical it is that the CIA, as he said today, uh, deliver unvarnished truth uh, to policymakers, especially when it may be inconsistent with what those policymakers want to hear. And I think that a big part of um, recentering the CIA after four tumultuous years with Donald Trump will be to make sure that that ethic permeates everything that the agency does. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, not only is he probably the most distinguished diplomat the country has produced in the past several decades. But I have to say, in 30 years of being in Washington and dealing with national security, um, I don't think there's anybody who knows more about more issues than Bill Burns. Um, one of the, the the places where he began to speak truth uh, had to do with uh, an assessment of our rivals. And I think today, during the hearings, he spoke about the importance of the evolving relationship with China. Um, 
uh, and although he didn't use these these words, it, it is clearly the most important bilateral relationship in the world, that between the U.S. and China. He also spoke about Russia and monitoring the the threat posed by Russia. Um, but I thought it was interesting because he described Russia as a diminishing power. Um, and, and it clearly is. You know, it's dominated the headlines in the United States for a variety of reasons. Um, but I think, it, you know, again, you get the sense of um, Bill's grasp of the situation by, you know, frankly laying out that one of these is a rising major concern and the other is in a different phase. What, what's your sense of that? Well, he would know, right, as former uh, ambassador to Russia in a very tumultuous time in that country's history. Um, but I, I think he got it exactly right. And I, I love the way he talked about China, um, because I think that there's a slightly toxic instinct here in the Congress. Um, and it's not just the Republicans. There's some Democrats, too, to try to sort of shoehorn the, the way we think about the Chinese into the same box that we used to think about the Soviets, you know, that here is a malign power interested in global domination with nothing but, you know, internal um, uh, uh, violations of, of values that we hold dear. And, and, and Bill Burns started the conversation about China by saying, look, there are uh, critical areas of common ground, commercial areas of common ground, stability. Uh, in East Asia and the South Pacific. Um, and so I think it was a good reminder to the Congress that we may get really angry at the Chinese for their stealing of our IP, for their uh, very, very predatory trading policy, for what they're doing to the Uyghurs. We have to remember um, that we have areas of profound common interest with them. And yes, they're very different than the Russians, you know, because I'm a lot less diplomatic um, than Bill Burns is. I, uh, I will sometimes say that from an intelligence standpoint, thinking about the Chinese versus thinking about the Russians, you know, the Chinese are very sophisticated. They play a long game. Um, they are dangerous in the sense that they will, you know, happily bide their time and wait. And everything they does that they do has a strategic objective. The Russians feel more like vandals. You know, it sort of feels like there is a um, adrenaline injection into the daily Russian soul if you just stick the finger in the eye of the Americans in whatever way is uh, convenient to you on that particular day. Um, and that's consistent, of course, with precisely what you just said, which is that the Russians are, are in chest beating mode. Uh, the, you know, Putin's explanation for everything that is not quite right in Russia is foreign interference and the nefarious activities of the Americas and the, uh, the Americans in the West. Um, and, um, you know, that comes obviously from a, from a position of weak, weakness and instability. Well, you know, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, you bring up the, the, the views of a lot of Republicans and some Democrats. And one of the things that's been said about uh, the incoming administration is they're going to change a lot of what Trump did, but they may hold on to some of the central core of his China policy. And, you know, that's, that's understandable. China is a rival, but as but as you indicate, not using these exact words, but as you indicate, our relationship with China is not like it was with Russia during the Cold War. That was a zero-sum relationship. They lose, we gain. We are so economically interdependent with China. China is so economically interdependent with so many of our allies that if China stumbles, the world stumbles. And so there is a different kind of a balancing act. Do you think in the kind of, you know, overheated atmosphere of American politics at the moment, 
developing a, a nuanced policy towards China is a political option in this country? Um, it better be. Um, I, I might reframe the question to say having a um, blockheaded, Manichaean, black-white way of thinking about China will lead to disaster. Um, I mean, as you point out, the level of commercial integration, I mean, my guess is that none of the products that we are wearing or using or driving don't have um, uh, China somewhere in the supply chain. Uh, China owns a great deal of United States sovereign debt. China has invested in our real estate and our corporations. So we, we don't have a choice. Now, you ask a really interesting question, and it's part of the reason I was grateful to Bill Burns by, for making that point. Um, pol uh, the political use of China, if you think about the last year, it didn't work, but the Republican supporters of Donald Trump decided that they were going to try to make this election about China. And the way they were going to do that was to, uh, you know, insert the words Chinese Communist Party into every other sentence and to associate the virus, the coronavirus, which they cor correctly saw could mean the end of Donald Trump's presidency, or at least the, the nail in the coffin of his second term, to make sure that the Chinese bore the blame for what happened here in the United States with the coronavirus. Um, and so we just spent a year uh, in which China was used by President Trump's supporters, read the Republican Party, as a mechanism to try to reelect the president. Uh, and hopefully the echoes of that go away, but we don't know if that's true. Um, and so again, one more reason why I was really glad that Bill Burns made that critical point. Um, sadly, memories back to Russia um, and the Soviet Union, though we're holding up, both of us are holding up the Soviet Union as a very different relationship. Even with the Soviet uh, Union, uh, and, and, and this point I'm about to make points to Iran and the JCPOA, even with the Soviet Union, we were willing to sit down to talk about reducing the number of nuclear warheads, uh, reducing uh, intermediate uh, nuclear arms that you know give you a five-minute warning before you need to retaliate, uh, setting up the Open Skies Treaty, even with the Soviet Union, which was as Manichaean a conflict as we have uh, perhaps had since uh, World War II, um, we would negotiate seriously uh, around uh, nuclear weaponry. And now you see why I say that this has echoes for Iran, um, because uh, as we think about the JCPOA and reviving in some form the Iran deal, we need to think back about how we dealt with the Soviets, right? Um, we didn't say you have to give up this number of nuclear warheads and you must stop uh, being undemocratic and get out of Eastern Europe, we said, let's talk about nuclear weapons and see where we can go from there. You know, it's interesting. I wasn't going to bring this up, but I, but I did notice that today a, a letter went out from, uh, I think, something like 30 congressmen to the president of the United States suggesting that he step away um, from our current nuclear policy of, of, of the, the, the president being able to be the sole uh, in, initiator uh, of, of response, and 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 uh, you know, it brings up a bigger question. And I know that you're involved in strategic tech and advanced research in 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 the, in the work that you're doing. You know, our our nuclear arsenal and our nuclear doctrine and our military doctrine more broadly are kind of rooted in the '70s and '80s. You know, and 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 so that we have a question of 
how do we modernize it? How do we modernize the, and, and make more safe the way we use it? And how do we deal with emerging threats? And, you know, I, I look up at the clock and we have 10 minutes and that question will take uh, 10 months to answer, but why don't you give it a shot? <laughs> yeah, I, I think I can at least give the headline answers there, um, which is that with respect to nuclear technology, the goal should be what the goal has been for two generations, which is this stuff is deadly and it's enormously expensive and it's very, very dangerous in, in ways having everything to do with the possibility uh, that other countries get hold of the technology. So let's have as little of it as is possible and consistent with our uh, sense for, of, 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 of deterrence. Um, and so that's why it was so sad to see the Trump administration instinctively move in the opposite direction. Let's get rid of open skies. Let's get rid of the INF treaty. And by the way, let's modernize and build a lot more nukes. There's, there's, there's nothing good about that outcome other than if you think that we can do what we did in the early 80s and just spend the Russians into submission, I guess you get some chest beating rights. Um, the reality is the end state here should be a China, a Russia, and the United States and the other nuclear powers with a lot fewer nuclear weapons than they have today and with more understanding about doctrine and capabilities. These were the things that kept us safe um, during, during the Cold War. Um, and so that's, um, you know, I, I'm not sure that's really arguable um, because, um, you know, nuclear technology is uniquely dangerous and uniquely expensive. Um, and so, uh, anyway, I'm, I'm very glad that, uh, that, that the Biden administration is sort of back to that more traditional approach. You know, the question of no first use, which I think is what you were alluding to, I didn't see the letter that you referred to, but um, it's a really interesting one. I mean, why, why historically did we not really seriously consider no first use? And the answer to that question was that when the, when the Soviets were pouring through the Fulda Gap in Germany with their armor, um, we wanted to preserve the option, uh, the strategic option, because they had more tanks than we did at certain. You know, that, that we don't talk much about tanks going through the Fulda Gap anymore. So I think it's a very fair conversation about whether we could, you know, make a safer world by agreeing to a, uh, 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 to a no first use policy. So let me um, shift a little bit, because uh, if it were not for the sort of aftermath of the Trump administration and having had a coup attempt on the Capitol and uh, the kind of tumult that we have been through for the past couple of months, we probably would be talking about the biggest hack that's ever taken place against the United States. Uh, this is the solar winds hack. Uh, we are still learning about the scope of the hack. We are still uncertain about the consequences of the hack. Um, I, I know it's an area that you've been on top of. Wh where do you think it stands now and what do you think the consequences ought to be? Yeah, great, great question. Um, and there's a lot to be said on it, but let me, let me focus on a couple of areas. I mean, uh, there's a lot to be said about our need to be, and you know, the listeners start to yawn the moment you get through a few of these words, to be much more vigilant and thoughtful about our supply chain. That was at the core um, of this attack. Uh, and it's a big, furry, complicated problem. Um, because uh, in China, 
They don't have supply chain issues. If the PLA wants to, they march into any company, any software company and say, show us your code, show us your files. We don't do that here in the United States. So it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge challenge in which we can nonetheless make real progress around standards and making sure that we have really secure uh, supply chains. Um, two areas though, to answer your question very directly, what are we possibly not doing enough of um, look, this is not a problem with a solution any more than we're going to solve bad weather, right? It's, it's, it's better management. And there's two things that I think that I would highlight that we're not doing enough of. Um, number one, and, and, and let me say right up front that I know this is a controversial statement, but we need to establish deterrence in this space. And we have never done that. And we know that we have never done that partly because we have never done that, but partly, but also because the Russians are you know close on the heels of 2016 when they hacked our uh, they you know they hacked the DNC and all of that familiar stuff, you know they're just right at it and the Russians need to understand that we have very serious offensive capabilities and that we will use those offensive capabilities. Um, and to be clear, I'm not talking about lethal action here. I'm talking about proportional action, dem demonstrative action. Sometimes only partly joking. I say that maybe in 2016 or maybe soon. 20 of the oligarchs that are critical to the financial support of Vladimir Putin, I would love to see them wake up with zero balances in their illicit Swiss bank accounts, just as an example of something we might do that would send a message. So getting serious about deterrence in this space. And again, I understand it's controversial because I've had the arguments with people like uh, Susan Rice and others. There's a counter argument about how vulnerable, vulnerable we are to escalation. And then the other and last thing I'll mention here, also perhaps in the category of stuff that makes people yawn, but absolutely essential, is we really need to uptick our conversations internationally about um, how we about establishing norms in this space. Um, you know, we neither we nor the Iranians nor the North Koreans or the Russians or the Chinese really know what each other considers an act of war, what each other considers a crime. If the you know if somebody gets into our filtration plants in Florida, as we saw last week, and actually a few people are are killed, is that a crime? Is it an act of war? We need to really turbocharge our discussions internationally um, around our doctrine, the definitions, um, how we work together against rogue actors. Because look, uh, the, you know, the Chinese are as vulnerable to rogue actors as the Americans are. Um, and that is an area that we have neglected much to our, to our peril, I think, in the last decade or so. So, you know, the, the follow on to that and the follow on to the discussion about where we stand on nuclear weapons is that when nuclear weapons were the big threat, we did sit down at the negotiating table with our arch enemies and we did hammer out agreements to contain the number of warheads, talk about delivery, set essentially rules for the game. And by the end of 30 or 40 years of having the technology, there was a clear doctrine. As you say, with regard to cyber, there is no clear doctrine. We don't know whether we can respond to things with you know, kinetically or what is proportionality. There are no rules for the game. And yet the possibility exists for essentially what I, what I have coined cool war, you know, which is essentially low grade conflict all the time from cyber that can slow economies, um, cost lives, damage relations and so forth. Isn't it the time both in terms of conflict and also in terms of security issues like you know what you can build into a device how you can check what do you can what you can do about it to start 
multilateral negotiations and set international ground rules around cyber and cybersecurity. Yeah, yeah. I mean, not to say what I just said over again, but um, absolutely. Um, You know, as you point out, um, uh, we don't know how we we don't know how the Chinese, the Russians, that you know, the usual rogues gallery of of antagonists think about this stuff, and they don't know how we think about it. And and frankly, we think about it in 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 um, in confusing ways. you know, Barack Obama talked about the Russian hack in 2016 very differently than Donald Trump's denial of the possibility of a, of, of a Russian hack in 2020. So confusion serves nobody's interests. Um, and, and I think the analogy is the right one, which is even when we were threatened with nuclear annihilation, when we were both very young um, in the Cold War, uh, we had very serious ongoing conversations about capabilities and doctrines and response and what was and what was not off limits. And, you know, there are areas where that conversation is hard. We're not giving up espionage. You know, nation states have been conducting espionage for thousands of years. We're not giving that up. Um, but it does seem to me that we, we could start a conversation about what about electrical grids? Um, you know, as we're learning in Texas, though that was obviously not a, a, a cyber uh, issue, a foreign cyber issue, uh, people die when electric grids go down. Uh, and so could we have start a conversation about making electric grids uh, off limits as civilian infrastructure and make it very clear that hospitals and other things, uh, even as we leave the door open for espionage. Um, now, you know, there are there are probably uh, gray areas, right? What about that airport, that civilian airport that has a National Guard unit? You know, can you take down the network at that airport? You know, there are, there are absolutely gray areas. Um, but it does seem to me like uh, we would be a much safer world if we would have those conversations and also maybe even establish, um, you know, one of the other analogies perhaps to the Cold War is um, even the antagonists, the Soviet Union and, and the United States, um, actually were pretty committed to um, uh, to trying to reduce the um, uh, the probability of other nation states becoming nuclear powers. Um, didn't work 100%, but um, we both were serious about it. Um, and uh, you know I, that uh, that points to me uh, that points me in the direction of a possible common interest between all of us in you know, being pretty hard on those rogue actors, those non-nation state actors, because, you know, much more so, it's pretty hard to get your hands on a nuclear device. It's not hard to assemble five or six motivated software engineers who could uh, create just as much damage in Tehran as they create in Miami. Uh, yeah, and the other reason that it's important, it was I was thinking of your comment about your conversations with uh, Susan Rice, and um you know the the deterrent involved you know in a strictly bilateral relationship is always going to be less effective than the possibility of a multilateral deterrent multilateral sanctions have much more potential weight and and this is a problem we're facing now in the context of solar winds um uh, i'm going to ask you we we have just a couple minutes left here i want to ask you a question um that I'm regularly getting, you know, you know, our audience is very steeped in foreign policy and, and national security policy. And, and I regularly am told we don't cover these kind of issues. Um, and this may be a little bit out of left field, but I note that you grew up in Latin America, that you speak Spanish, that you studied Latin America policy. Um, and the most 
you know, consistent question I get, and, and you also deal with international development policy, but the most consistent question I get from friends in Latin America is, you know, when are we going to prioritize Latin America? What are we going to do about, um, you know, the damage that was done by Trump policies in Central America, Trump policies towards Venezuela, Trump's friendship with his, you know, mini-me in Brazil? And, and by that, I mean Bolsonaro. Uh, I'm just wondering, I know this is not a central focus of yours, but it's something I know that's close to your heart. Do you think there is any chance for any of these issues to sort of float up to the level of priority where something actually happens? Well, um, no, it's actually a great question. Um, you know, first 10 years of my life spent in Latin America um, and much of my education focused on it. Um, you know, we've, we've, We've very badly neglected uh, Latin America ever since the Cold War. I, I mean, you and I remember the late 80s where, you know, Central America was a proxy battlefield uh, to the Cold War. Uh, and all we really cared about was that, the, you know, the other dozen plus countries in the region were more on our side than on their side. Um, you know, and then, of course, 10 years after the Cold War ended, pretty much we got uh, very, very focused on, on terrorism and, and Middle East in particular. So it's been a policy of, of uh, largely of neglect. And, it, and, it, and, it's, and, and there's a couple real lost opportunities there. Number one, people forget that um, if you take the two or three decade point of view, Latin America is a remarkable story of progress, politically speaking, right? In the 1970s, uh, most of the countries were either under military dictatorship or some version thereof. Uh, and today, with a couple of notable exceptions um, and, and some slightly scary leaders, as you point out, in places like Brazil, um, you know, you have, you have much, much more democratic governments. And so there's a real lost opportunity there in terms of working together for more responsive uh, governments, uh, more democratic. I, I start with the word responsive rather than democratic. Um, there's a real opportunity to increase markets for U.S. goods in those countries in the service of helping with development um, and, um, and building up all the multilateralism that you were referring to about three or four minutes ago. Um, and so I do hope um, you know, that we, I, I don't imagine, I mean, let's, let's face it, back to sort of Kissinger's way of looking at the axis of history running between, you know, London, Berlin, Moscow, and Washington. I, I, I don't know that we'll ever entirely shake the notion that Latin America is to some extent on the periphery of our most pressing strategic concerns, but it ought to be on the very near periphery because um, it's one of the few regions of the world that I think really um, presents um, unconditional win-wins in bilateral and multilateral relationships in the economy, in reducing uh, narcotics, uh, and in any number of other areas. Um, I, I'm amused at the way you bring up Kissinger. You know, I, I was partner of Henry Kissinger's for a couple of years, and, you know, I always viewed it that his uh, singular contribution was being able to apply the lessons of the early 19th century to the middle of the 20th century. But <laughs> we're not in either of those places right now and we need something new. And uh, there's a, there's a, there's a lot going on elsewhere in the world that we're going to have to contend with one way or another. Fortunately for us as a country, we've got people like you in the United States Congress, smart people with uh, well-developed worldviews. I am extremely glad every time that you can come here, if not for any other reason than you mentioned, you know, uh, Manichaean dualities more often than, than most of the guests on this program. Um, and uh, I hope, hope you will uh, join us again uh, sometime soon. 
Uh, for uh, all the rest of you, we also hope you will join us again sometime soon. We now have a podcast every single day of the week uh, and twice on some days. So go to the dsrnetwork.com for more information like that. And thank you very much, Congressman Himes, for joining us today. David, thank you. Always a pleasure to join you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.